this is Becky Freeman, and welcome to another edition of the Tobacco Control Journal podcast. I'll be interviewing two researchers. First will be Jim McCambridge, who will be discussing his paper on the Brussels Declaration. And next, I'll be speaking with Lisa Biro, who will be giving her tips for how to spot tobacco industry involvement in science policy. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Today we're talking about a really interesting paper called The Brussels Declaration, a vehicle for the advancement of tobacco and alcohol industry interests at the science policy interface. And I've got the lead author of this work, Jim McCambridge, who's from the University of York. He's a professor of addictive behaviors and public health there. And we're going to sort of talk through what is the Brussels Declaration and what does it mean for tobacco control? Welcome, Dr. McCambridge. How are you? Good. Good to meet you, Becky. Good. Thanks for coming on today. So before we sort of get into, you know, what your paper is all about, maybe you could just give us a bit of a background on, for people who don't know, what is the Brussels Declaration? What What is this document? Well, the Brussels Declaration is uh, a, a document which claims to make advances in our thinking about the relationship between science and policy with a view to uh, making uh, more realistic the goal of evidence-based policy. So, so it aspires to do something that I think would be very widely shared both within the scientific community uh, and beyond. It is. It has come about as a result of the actions of a science communications consultancy. It appears that SICOM were involved in some at prestigious scientific events such as the World Science Forum. The declaration itself was then launched at the American Association for the Advancement of Science and there was an announcement in the journal Nature. My impression from your paper is that it started out with no tobacco industry involvement, but certainly in your analysis is certainly no longer the case. It's heavily invested in by tobacco control or tobacco industry, sorry. Um, who who are these people and, and why did it start out perhaps as a, a more pure process and now is so heavily tainted by industry interests? So more than any other um, company involved, tobacco have a total of seven senior figures involved in this initiative, if one includes Nickel Ventures Company within the BIT group. Uh, there, there are also representatives from Swedish Match, another tobacco company, uh, trade associations for that industry, and, and also Philip Morris. In terms of how it came about and sort of, you know, what changed from the first meeting to later meetings in a five-year five series, we're not entirely clear. Um, so at the first meeting, uh, we know from the account of Richard Horton, one of the people who were named, quoted and photographed in the announcement of this declaration, that he'd accepted an invitation to go and discuss uh, evidence-based policy issues uh, without any suggestion of tobacco company involvement, and there was none at the meeting that he attended. And then it appears, uh, perhaps from the second year onwards, that tobacco companies did become involved. We don't really know who exactly has been involved, how they were selected, 
how funding uh, of the events and the process more generally uh, has um, has been provided so that costs have been covered. So there's quite a lot that is not at all transparent transparent, which is which is very ironic given that one of the key features of the declaration are calls for the scientific process to be made much more transparent and for research integrity and integrity of science policy processes to be to be attended to much more carefully. Okay, but if we can let's say we could actually get past the process. Is this actually a quality document or I guess it's not actually a document or declaration. Is it does it promote sound science? What's actually in it? Well, the content is quite broad ranging in that it covers a whole host of issues about science and its relationship with policy, including how evidence might be used within policy making, including also issues to do with science policy. And many of the contents are entirely reasonable. <laughs> you know, they, they are, I would say also they are fairly unremarkable. I don't think that there is anything that's particularly novel or enlightening about this content. But what is striking about it is the coverage of conflicts of interests and and the the role of of vested interests within policy making processes here we see suggestions for example that commercial conflicts of interest are relatively straightforward to manage and that a much bigger problem is academic conflicts of interests mm. um, so so the interests of scientists themselves which are are here claimed to potentially be academic in nature personal in nature or ideological in nature and so any attention to safeguarding the processes of science and the science informing policy from undue uh, undue influence by vested interests is entirely ignored. So there is no reference, for example, to the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control and in particular to uh, Article 5.3, which requires uh, national governments and other signatories to that treaty to protect public health policies from interference by tobacco uh, company actors. And the need for that has arisen, as I'm sure uh, you and many listeners will be aware, from the very long history of attempts to subvert the process uh, processes of science and informing policy with science that tobacco company actors have been involved in over many decades, mm. which we know through access to internal company documents that were released following litigation. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I, I think is, is particularly interesting about the Brussels Declaration, and this, this actually extends across both the tobacco and alcohol sectors is that you see uh, trade associations be being directly involved in discussions about science and how science mm. should influence or inform policy. And if you think about it, trade associations are organisations whose very purposes mm. are to advance the business interests of their members. And so it's appropriate to question, I think, 
what role trade associations should have in discussions about science and its relationship with policy. Absolutely. And, and, and that's an exceptional point. It's not just, you know, to scientists who happen to have, you know, different biases or different points of view. These are trade organizations. They have no stake or interest or history in science at all. And yet here they are, you know, championing a Brussels declaration all about science that suits their particular business partners. Well, I guess you raise these sort of five key ethical concerns that come out of this, um, particularly around, you know, the lack of transparency, the blatant vested interest from, you know, tobacco, alcohol, pharmaceutical, trade associations, that there's no rules of engagement with these harmful industries. We've got this increasing industry engagement in research. And finally, the influence on the Brussels Declaration in policy development. When you take all those things together, it, this paints a really bleak picture for this declaration. And I know it's far too soon to tell if it's had any impact on policy, but what can we? What should we be doing about this in public health? What's our solution? What's our approach? Well, I, I think ironically, the Brussels Declaration draws attention to the need to reaffirm what are core and foundational values in science to do with transparency and research integrity. Uh, so it is the norm that scientists make declarations of interests in respect mm. of any work that they're doing that may that, that may in any way affect the content of the work being produced. Now. It is not, you know, it, it has not been uh, the norm within the process of, of developing the Brussels Declaration. So we found in any of the supporting documentation, absolutely no um, declarations of interest whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So I think a good starting point would be requiring declarations of interest within policy making to be a to be a new norm and for that to be extended to all parties involved in um, in policy making um well thank you so much for sharing your work with us i think it's really interesting and um it's nice to talk to someone who is an expert in alcohol control who's sort of bringing that knowledge into tobacco control so thank you so much next guest, we have Professor Lisa Biro, who is going to talk about the editorial she wrote about the Brussels Declaration research paper, and just sort of give some really practical advice to scientists and researchers who are trying to sort of find their way through these um, sorts of problems when there's lots of industry involvement and how we can sort of maybe be better scientists, I guess. Welcome, Lisa. How are you? Good, Becky. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Now, I was just saying, I was quite ashamed to say that when I read the Brussels Declaration paper, I had actually never heard of this before. Well, I was in the same boat when uh, I received the article from Jim McCambridge and his colleagues to you know, write an editorial on it. And I looked at it and I thought it's about the Brussels Declaration. So the first thing I did actually before I read the article, I went to the Brussels Declaration and started reading that. And as I read it, all sorts of alarm bells started going off in my head about um, wondering where this declaration came from. And boy, it sure looked like there was uh, industry involved. And then I actually read the paper um, by Jim and his colleagues, and I realized that's actually what their paper was uh, about and that they had done some investigation into that. Mm. So if these things obviously are, are commonplace, they're going on, they're perhaps getting a bit more sophisticated. 
what can scientists do? You've written this editorial that gives sort of the top 10 tips, if you like. Um, were there maybe um, three or four you wanted to really focus on that scientists could use to make sure they don't get fooled into supporting these things? Well, that's hard because I think they're all important. But I, I think, uh, I mean, so when I looked at the Brussels Declaration or, you know, similar documents, I guess the first things that jump out at me is that it's coming from a communications company or a PR firm that is who's written it. So even though it might have scientific societies affiliated with it, it's coming from uh, a PR firm. Another thing that really jumps out at me is you see these phrases that say something like 500 scientists from 50 countries support this. Or uh, in the case of secondhand smoke, uh, the tobacco industry was always saying, you know, thousands of scientists from 500 countries, um, you know, have reached a consensus saying it's not harmful. So whenever I see a phrase like that, I'm thinking, is this a real consensus or a false consensus? And it's often a false consensus. And then I think the third thing, um, because it really bothers me, um, if I have to pick on three of these, is this kind of misperception of conflicts of interest. And this came up in the Brussels Declaration. And of course, you know, everyone thinks research should be free of conflicts of interest and disclosure is a good thing. Uh, but when you frame it to say that a conflict of interest is basically any uh, funding for research, so for example, funding from government or any personal interest that a scientist might have, including you know, their personal beliefs or experience, then that's a mishandling of, of conflicts of, of interest. Hmm. And maybe we could just expand a bit more on that non-financial conflicts of interest, because I find that really difficult to wrap your head, my head around in some ways, because if you're researching a topic, you inherently know about it and have you know, researched on it and have beliefs about it. And it kind of gets spun out, oh, you would say that because you you believe in public health and that those conflicts of interest are somehow more significant than financial ones. Yeah, I mean, that that's being uh, perpetrated a lot. And uh, I've written a few related articles on this topic lately. And, you know, I guess one view is that science is completely objective and scientists shouldn't bring any of their own um, personal beliefs uh, to the table. But uh, you know, there's a vast body of literature uh, show in social science uh, showing that science can never be completely objective, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And so scientists may come from a certain discipline. They may have a, um, a history of working in a certain area, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're biased or that they have a conflict of interest. And in fact, many scientists, if you look at their uh, record, they'll they'll change their views, and that's documented in the you know their academic uh, publications, and it's not a conflict of interest because they don't really benefit uh, personally from this. If a study is about a particular product and it's funded by the company that makes that product, it's a very clear conflict of interest because if that product looks good, um, the money made based on that product goes right back um, into the sponsor's pocket. Exactly. And I mean, just to say one thing also, um, which I didn't mention, there's also a lot of evidence uh, showing the impact of financial interest on research outcomes. And so by that, I mean, there's a lot of uh, meta research studies that have been done that show that even when um, you control for all of the methodological characteristics of a study, uh, we still see that studies with a, a sponsor who could uh, financially gain from the outcome 
or more likely to find an outcome favorable to the sponsor. And it has nothing to do with the methods of the study. So it's a bias. Now, my sort of of your top 10 tips, I have to say my favorite was number nine, the language in the document is critical of scientists, but not of industry. Do you want to maybe just talk about how the Brussels Declaration was really centered on this premise that somehow scientists are completely aloof and arrogant? <laughs> yes, I love those terms that scientists are aloof and, and arrogant. And, and basically, it was an accusation that scientists weren't engaging um, you know, with uh, important decisions that needed to be made, policy decisions that might involve science. And basically that those who were affiliated with industry were bringing uh, useful information to the table that these, and I quote, vested interests could be uh, very beneficial. So it sort of set up the industry um, scientists as those who were contributing constructively to um, information uh, on a debate, whereas the um, independent scientists just sort of sat off in their little ivory tower and, and did nothing. And I also found those terms really interesting because in other documents, um, industry documents sometimes accuse independent scientists of being, you know, experts. And there's this whole, you know, post-truth initiative mm. um, going. And, and so, you know, in a way saying that they're aloof and, and arrogant um, contrasted with some of their other criticisms saying that, uh, oh, you know, they're, they're experts and they can't be trusted uh, for that reason. So, you, you know, that you couldn't, you couldn't do good either way. Oh, exactly. And I, I find it just really interesting that they're leveraging that idea that um, people who work in academia are so out of touch. But if you work in industry somehow, you're much more in touch with, you know, what's actually happening in the real world. Um, I guess, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I guess my sort of final, um, I like, I love the question you pose at the end there. Why are scientists so gullible? And um, I think that's a really great way to sort of maybe make a conclusion of how we, how can we be less gullible? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because scientists are often very skeptical um, if they're looking into a body of research, you know, they're always questioning things and they're always seeing if the methods are good enough. And um, But often when it comes to actually critiquing how research are, is done, uh, they don't think about that. They'll think about just their, their own, you know, world of research, but not about the overall methods um, of research and how those can be uh, manipulated. And also, I think, more importantly, uh, who's manipulating that. So, I mean, I don't really have the answer for why scientists are so gullible, but I find it surprising <laughs> that, you know, they can be really skeptical about their work, but then, you know, somebody, some PR firm tells them, oh, you know, the quality of science overall is horrible and we're going to do something about it by, you know, taking control of these standards and they throw up their hands and go, okay, that sounds like a good idea. You know, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, obviously, to be continued and more work needs to be done. Um, but thank you so much for talking with us today. Great. Thanks a lot, Becky. You too. Thanks so much to both of our guests, Jim and Lisa. Uh, be sure to check out their research on the Tobacco Control website, which is tobaccocontrol.bmj.com. And of course, you're welcome to follow us on Twitter at TC underscore BMJ, and you'll be able to stay on top of all the latest publications and upcoming podcasts.